and welcome to today's episode of the Pipeline ACC podcast. I am Dan Siegel from ACC Content. I am joined, as always, by Jason Gibbs. Jason, how are we doing today? Dan, absolutely lovely. You know, we obviously have college football in our rearview mirror. We're careening towards March, and man, college basketball is nothing but chaos this year. That's really exactly how I'd put it, and to discuss, we are going to have our guy, Eric Haslam, who runs the develops, runs, controls the Haslametrics.com website. And I know a lot of you out there know KenPom.com. A lot of you out there, I reference Bart Torvik. This one is a really under-the-radar website that I feel like should have more love. But um, it's basically the same thing where they rank all the college basketball Division One teams from different conferences, all from one to 350, whatever, and um, all sorts of features. We'll have Eric on to discuss. It'll be a great show. But just before we get to that, here is Sam Willard with our obscure betting tip of the day. Hey, Jason and Dan. I'm Sam Willard here once again for your obscure betting tip of the day. And for today's pick, I'm going to go to the Colonial Conference for tonight's game between... James Madison and Elon. James Madison will travel to Elon tonight. And they are a three-point favorite. I'm going to take that because James Madison has averaged 80 points or more in three of their last four games. And in the fourth game, they got 79 points. Whereas Elon has mainly been stuck in the mid-50s and low-60s for their point totals. So I think Elon will probably hang tough for a little while, but I just don't think that they can score enough um, late in the second half to keep it close with James Madison. I think James Madison pulls away and gets the three-point or more victory. So for my obscure betting tip of the day, I'm rolling with the Monarchs to uh, win by three or more. Enjoy the game and happy betting. Okay, thank you very much, Sam. Now here comes Eric Haslam. So we are now joined by Eric Haslam, developer of Haslametrics.com. Eric, first off, I know we're obviously going to talk a lot of college basketball today, but did you just see that disaster of what was the attempt of the end of the Cowboys 49ers game? <laughs> what the heck was that? I did see that. And, uh, I mean, if you would think that Dallas would want a couple opportunities at the end zone. And, you know, I, I, I get what they're trying to do. They're trying, you know, San Francisco was playing the sidelines. So, Dallas kind of called their bluff and ran up the middle, but yeah, without timeouts and with 14 seconds left, even if you get, you know, down there with, I don't know what, at what point Prescott's knee hit the ground or whatever, but you got to take into account that those referees are not very fast and they got to set that ball. So in my opinion, when I saw that going, I was like, I, what is he doing? <laughs> and then they got down there and, and honestly, they got pretty close, but then, you know, even if they get down to say the 25 yard line, you're, you're probably improving your chances to a certain degree, but don't you think you'd want to have two shots at the end zone? Um, I, I don't know. That's just, that, that's just the way I was kind of thinking about it. Um, I thought it was kind of dangerous with San Francisco really playing the sidelines because I would have just sent Dallas a, a, a ton of guys deep right down the middle, but you know, it, uh, you know, they called uh, San Francisco's bluff and they paid for it. What did the Haslam metrics say about a 25 yard yard draw with no timeouts left <laughs> you know I, i'd have to crunch it in the computers and, and sadly i uh 
I don't have uh, any football uh, analytics to, to back up any of my uh, my opinions. So I got to go based on the eye test on that one. Gotcha. I felt like that was a matter of like who wanted to lose that game more. And obviously it ends up being the Cowboys because neither team played that well. But anyway, yeah, let's go to college basketball. So Haslametrics, I know you've been on here before, but can you just give us like a brief synopsis of what Haslametrics is and how you exactly got started, got inspired to create it? Yeah, you know, it was something that I um, I started back in 2014. The, the work actually began before that. And, and, you know, as the site says, my goal is to provide unique statistical insights and offer predictive analysis based on teams' prior performances in a given season. Um, it uses a lot of transitive performance comparisons around the scene. It's geared around scoring to determine where all the 358 teams are placed um, the, the idea behind it is everybody else in the past has kind of used like the four factors of Dean Oliver. I kind of want to do, do things my own way. And I determined, uh, based on using my play-by-play logs that I started doing back in 2014, I was able to determine where shots were being taken from on the court, when special situations were arising during basketball games that might yield a higher shooting percentage and kind of dividing all those things up and rating them all differently and then bringing them all together in my predictions. So it was a little bit different than the way that a lot of other people have done it. And that was, that was the idea behind it. I just, um, you know, we've, there have been other analytics sites, but for the most part, I just wanted to understand how I was arriving at my numbers, as opposed to just being given numbers on a sheet, you look at it and go, okay, I'm taking somebody else's word for it. My goal was I wanted to understand myself the entire process and then understand by taking that process, be able to offer some sort of predictive model to tell you who's going to be winning these games, where are these teams going to be ranked and so forth. And it just started with regular old ratings and rankings. And then we added projections and, and bracketology deserves and automated team capsules, automated team summaries. It's It's just one of those things that, started out being brick by brick and you know after a while you step back and you kind of built a castle and that's that's what she is today you know we uh we we uh, mentioned on our uh pipeline discord shameless plug by the way um that (laughs) we were going to have you on and we asked you know a lot of our users did they have any questions we had a couple questions submitted is there and this is by s woolard is there a hidden analytic or stat that you pay close attention to that might not be as uh, common to the everyday fan? Well, I think one of them is going to be the one that kind of the two that I like to use from like a gambling perspective is the momentum uh, rating and the, uh, the away from the away from home rating. And the idea behind momentum, it used to be a rolling average of the six, of the last six to 10 games. I kind of wanted to tighten that up. So I ended up rolling it back and making it the last four to eight games. And the, the idea behind the analytics is when you have a result that, that happens, you have an expectation based on the team's current placement. So based on a team's current placement, it looks back at all the, the old games that have been played this season, and there's been a result. And it, and it basically gauges what the expectation is today versus what the result was in those games. And as a result, you get all these pluses and minuses. You get these game efficiency ratings. When we're talking about momentum, you're basically just taking that rolling average of those four last four to eight games, those plus or minus ratings and comparing it against the entire season. And so that'll give you an idea of those teams that are really performing well in the last four to eight games versus the regular season, the teams that are not performing well. 
Same kind of premise holds for AFH, which is away from home. You're either going to have a game that's going to be at home or a game that's going to be away from home, which means a neutral court game or an, or an away game. Same premise holds. You're just going to look at those plus and minus ratings for the away games and the neutral court games and then compare it against the entire season. And that kind of identifies those teams who really do a good job at winning away from home and those teams that really need that home court advantage to succeed. And I feel like home court advantage had to have been a struggle recently over the last couple of years with COVID and some games there's full capacity, others there's no capacity, others there's limited and it all changes even in one specific venue throughout the year. So how do you try to account for all of that? You know, what I, tr- what I try to do in the past, I, I looked at home court advantage in a team by team um, basis and, I thought to myself, you know, I really just can't really rely on it too much because as many games as a team has at home, I mean, we're talking 15 or whatever, throughout most of the season, you don't really have a big enough sample set to really truly rely on it. So what I ended up doing is using a blanket home court advantage across the board for all teams in college basketball. Um, When you think about like, for example, like the COVID situation last year, um, think about what home court gives you. And I, kind of broke it down into three parts it's there's the travel the travel advantage of teams having to travel a distance to come to you the home court fans that give you that adrenaline and then the court familiarity and when it came to like covid last year two of those three were still there the team still had to travel the court familiarity was still there but there weren't the fans so at at first i kind of i wrapped or i i ramped everything down from a home court advantage by about two-thirds did some numbers and made some adjustment because it turned out that roughly about 80% of the home court advantage was still there. Um, This year I returned to normal, but obviously there are some exceptions out there. You're seeing now with out in California, um, UCLA and USC come to mind where they're not putting fans in the stands, but you know, how do you realistically handle it analytically when there are very few teams without fans, most teams have fans in the year 2022, I think it's just part of the, uh, you just have to accept imperfection to a certain degree with analytics. And this is why I always say that analytics will tell a large part of the story. They won't tell the whole story. This is why as an analytics guy, I am the last person who's going to say, we need to throw um, the eye test on the trash heap. I think the eye test provides a very significant purpose. Um, It helps quite a bit. So at the same, this is a great example of, how do you handle this home court advantage when it's an imperfect machine? You have a lot of teams that, that are going to have fans, some that are not, but are, are you really going to chase every single situation down? You'll spin your wheels all day long, and that's the problem. You often refer to a consistency metric in your tweets. As a better, should I pay heavy attention to that or as far as how confident I am using your projections? You know, I would say that's that's kind of up to the better. I would say you might want to use it to dissuade you. I mean, if you look at a team like I, I team that jumps to mind is Villanova. Villanova is very inconsistent based on some of the results, some of the blowout losses they've had, some huge victories they've had, big efficiency margins, bad efficiency margins, and that's how the the, the consistency consistency sizes up, and it's really it's broken down based on the separate efficiencies you have offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency um it's not looking at the game results so even though you might say i'm going to use an extreme case say your team was projected to win a game 55 to 45 and they won the game 95 85 is that consistency now 
you may have uh, we're looking at things from an efficiency standpoint if the if the tempo is way off between those games and the efficiency is 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 still very similar then you won't have so too much inconsistency but say the the tempo is roughly the same between the expectation and the reality and you all of a sudden the prediction was 55 45 it was 95 85 that's not consistency because your offensive efficiency was much higher your defensive efficiency was much worse and that's going to score very high on the inconsistency scale now that's a pretty extreme example but that's what's going on behind the scenes is we're trying to figure out how many of these teams are playing consistent how much can i rely on those results um again humans are really kind of imperfect beings. Um, you can have a team that's really high in consistency and all of a sudden out of the blue just gets blown out of the water. Um, I've seen teams that are very consistent through 12 games and all of a sudden their 13th is just a train wreck. Um, really hard to say, but if you really buy into that, I know a lot of people sometimes, even I like to pinpoint all the teams that are inconsistent because sometimes these teams that are inconsistent are waiting to break out. They're just going to blow up and, and I've had people argue to me and say, I'm looking for the inconsistent teams because I'm going to bet on them because I'm waiting for them to break out. Um, if they have, especially if they have a few bad games. So it can be used a lot of different ways. It's really up to the better on that one. But I feel like inconsistency to a certain extent is what makes March Madness and college basketball in general just so great. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they, I, people love that. And that's what it, it's, it tells a story. And, you know, even yesterday was a great example of a day where I'm looking at some of these results and just scratching my head. And, it, you know, if you're a, if you're an individual like me, who's trying to project what's going to happen, I, I'm, I'm not going to call it frustrating because I think people understand for the most part that we are to a certain degree, like weatherman. It's there's times the weatherman says the sun's coming out and it rains and Based on the patterns in the past and the uh, the computers and all the data that's plugged in there, one outcome is supposed to happen, and then something else happens, and you look at everything else and go, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, but it happens all the time, and that's why I always say that you know only God can map the human soul. You really can't predict how human beings are going to behave from one day to the next. I I was a rower in college, and I remember you know at one point we I, was, I rode for Wisconsin. And I remember rowing against Navy over a two-week period. We faced the same Navy team, I want to say, four or five times. And, you know, the results were so different. And you're like, why is that the case? Why are we just out of sync one day and then perfectly in sync the next? I was the same way in basketball. You know, you just get days when you're hot and you're feeling it, and the ball just won't even touch the rim. It's just through every single time. And then there's another other days you just can't hit water if you fell out of a boat. And, and so it's really hard to tell. For the most part, the analytics are going to be going to give you a rough estimate of an average behavior of each team, but they are by no means perfect. And I think most of the fans understand that. For sure. Uh, moving into a little bit of ACC stuff. So obviously we're an ACC podcast. I don't know if you have a stat for this or you could just kind of like contextualize it, but how mm -hmm. bad is the ACC this year? Like from a historical perspective? Well, I can tell you going back, a few years when I started this in 2014. So what I did is I, you know, a lot of people always ask that question. How do you rate um, how these conferences are? And so what I did a few weeks ago is I kind of came up with a way in saying, I'm going to average out the Haslametrics rankings of for each conference, the top five teams, the, the, the rankings of the middle five teams and the rankings of the bottom five teams. And then I'm going to average those three together. And if you do that today, 
The ACC right now is fifth um, of the Power Six conference teams. Uh, the Pac-12 was sixth, but the ACC is fifth, and their average rating is an 84.5. Their average ranking is an 84.5. That is the worst that I have seen the ACC since I started um, in 2014-15. Um, the closest would probably be at this point, um, and I and I compared the, this number to the same date in all the years past. The closest is that COVID year of 2019 and 20. The ACC was actually sixth out of six, but their ranking was a 74.1. It was better than the 84.5 it is today. And even, even then I just jumped forward and I said, what, how were they at the end of that year? Remember, remember when everything was canceled because of COVID? They were still sixth out of six for the power conferences, but they were at least 68.2. If you look at all the other years, again, 84.5 this year. If you look at all the other years, 58.8, 49.3, 55.5, 43.2, 52.3, you're seeing a, a pattern here where the ACC is just way down compared to, um, compared to the past years, except for that one year in 2019 and 20 when they're just marginally down from that. But still, it's, it, it's, it, you know, a lot of people think this is just the, the worst the ACC has been in a while. And, you know, the analytics basically confirm it. If you want to, you, you can break things down a number of ways, but I think this way is a really good way of doing it. And it really does reveal how much the ACC is struggling this year. As it stands in your bracketology deserves right now, we have Duke on the three line, UNC on the eight line, Wake on the 11 line, Miami, the last four in, and that's it. Do you yeah. think that's an accurate representation and, and how it'll happen in March and, you know, is, is that kind of a, the ceiling or, or maybe the floor? Uh, well, you know, how do you see well, that shaking out? Yeah, I'll, I'll warn you about the, the deserves. The deserves are only based on what teams have done, and you're not projecting what teams are going to do. So a great example is look at all these teams in the Big 12. The Big 12 is going to have so many more opportunities to score big wins against the likes of a Texas or Kansas or a Texas Tech or a, or a Baylor. Whereas a team like Murray State or Belmont, they have each other. They're not, you know, and then what other impact wins? How can they acquire those quad one wins? So, you know, looking at the bracketology deserves today is only looking at the middle of January and going backwards. Um, this is obviously going to change because those power conference teams are going to have more opportunity um, for big wins. Those, those mid-majors are not going to have that same opportunity. So you'd expect over time, the power conference teams to rise, the mid-majors to drop. Um, the deserves are looking at, you know, a lot of different factors, performance ranking, resume, uh, quadrant ratings, impact victories, adjustments based on record, both elite records and substandard records, um, unique opponents, things like that. Um, I think Duke and UNC are, you know, in, are in good position right now. Wake Forest um, is, is a pretty decent situation right now. They're looking at 40th in my performance ranking, 33rd in record quality, but you're looking, there's no Virginia Tech, there's no Clemson, there's no FSU, um, Virginia, Louisville, teams that you'd expect to be there in the past have been big disappointments, no question about it, but, you know, are we, are, am I ready to rule out a Virginia Tech or a Clemson or an FSU? Absolutely not. I think there's plenty of times uh, or, or plenty of games left for those teams to score big victories. They're going to see the Dukes. They're going to see the North Carolinas. Um, you know, even a, a win over Wake Forest is going to be able to hold a little bit of water. So even though today you're only looking at four ACC teams in the tournament based on the deserves, if you fast forward 
probably you you know you're talking about seven eight weeks you're probably looking at maybe a little bit more in there maybe the ACC is in a better position than they are right now but just keep that in mind about the deserves it's only looking backwards it's not looking forwards what about Virginia Tech because I see they're they're what 41st in your metrics but like they're one and four in ACC play and you have them 41st I see like the net has them even higher and they're like they're in a lot of the bracketology discussions. Do you have an explanation for like why people like Virginia tech so much, despite them being one in four in a pretty bad conference? I mean, does that same yeah. win hold that much weight or what? No, you know, I think that it does. It absolutely does help. And that, but that's one game of many, but there's other things, you know, I look at a great example of a team like this in the past has been Penn state in the big 10. There was a time, I think in the last couple of years, where you saw Penn State right around the top 25 in my performance rankings, and they were right around 500. And we're not talking in like December, we're talking in February and March. And the reason for that is, and I, again, I like to use extreme examples to, to make my point. From a performance ranking standpoint, imagine a team that was the 11th best team in the country that played 10 opponents, and they were all the top 10 teams, and they lost every single one of them in overtime. You know, in that situation, that team would be 0-10, but they just took every single top 10 team to the limit. So it would, it would make sense that that team was probably going to be close to being a top 10 team. And that's the reason why you see a team like Virginia Tech that's lingering up there near the top. A lot of their losses have been very competitive. They lost a, you know, a single-digit loss to Memphis. They lost to Virginia by two. They lost to Dayton by five. Um, you know, and then they made up for it with some pretty decent performances against um, lesser competition. They blew the efficiency margins out of the water. Cornell, they win by 33. Navy, they win by 20. That was a nice win. 35-point um, win over Maine, who's not a very good team. But, you know, that sometimes can be good and sometimes can be bad. It exposes teams as paper tigers. Uh, a paper tiger, I think of, like, Iowa to a certain degree, although to a lesser degree, Iowa than maybe Michigan. And I'll say Michigan because at one point, I think it was about 10 days ago, Michigan was 7-0 and against teams outside my top 75, and they were 0-5 against teams in my top 75. So you can have efficiency margins. You can have teams that really take it to these, these seller dwellers. And that's what, you know, and, and those performances really look like something a Gonzaga or a Baylor would do to those teams. But then when they finally face a little competition, they fold like a cheap suit. I'm not saying Virginia Tech is doing that but they've been competitive in a lot of games. And like you said, that game against St. Bonaventure holds a 0.63.5 game efficiency rating. I don't know where that is in the overall scheme. I'd have to look it up, but you're probably talking of all the games this season. That's probably a top 20 deviation from the expectation. That's how much of, of an unexpected outcome that was. And you can't discount it. And a lot of people say, well, that you throw that game out. Well, you kind of got to count everything. And, and I don't count it in its entirety. Because of the concept of analytically final, which I, you know, I don't know if people know about that, where I, I cut off, once a game goes mathematically final, I cut off everything after a point in the game. So there's less waiting on that game because there's less game minutes to, to absorb. But still, when you're looking at that big of an efficiency margin over a team like St. Bonaventure, it's going to play and it's going to impact the metrics. You know, we do a segment about once a month where we, you know, we each give three non-ACC teams that intrigue us. Normally, we do one 
current high seed, one seed in the middle, and one double digit seed. Mm-hmm. What what are what are three teams that that would kind of uh, fit that bill for you? Well, for a high seed, you know, I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Villanova. People forget how good they are because of their four losses and they're really inconsistent. Um, in particular, people think of the blowout losses, the back-to-back losses to to Baylor and Creighton in mid-December, where they only scored a combined 95 points in two games. But they haven't lost since then. They've won six in a row, average margin of over 18 points a game. That includes two wins over Xavier, a road win over Seton Hall. They exacted revenge on Creighton by by beating them by by 34. And I'm a firm believer that that experience matters. Um, Their key contributors are all upperclassmen. They have big-time balance, top 10 in both offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. And here's the scary part of it about Villanova. The team shoots plenty of threes, just like always, but they're just a mediocre 176th in, the, in adjusted three-point percentage. What happens when they really do get going in the shooting department? You saw a little bit of a sign of things to come, possibly, in that win over, over Butler, where they, they shot 63% from distance, 12 of 19. Gillespie was 5 of 6. Justin Moore was 3 of 4. Um, you know, that was a 40-point win. If they play like that, that Villanova team is really going to be tough to beat. That's why they are um, a top five team in my performance rankings over the last 10 or 11 days. Um, for a middle seed team, the team that I, I don't know if I'd consider a middle seed. Uh, they're, they're currently at the very, very top of my five line in the bracketology deserves, but they're probably better, is Illinois. Um, they're, they're 24th in the country in momentum right now, won six in a row, 11 of 12. They've really put those losses, those early season losses to uh, Marquette and Cincinnati, Cincinnati behind them. And you look at what they've got, you know, the impact of Kofi Coburn, you can't say enough about him averaging a double, double 22 and 12. Um, everything, the, the numbers reflect what he does on the inside. Illinois is sixth in near proximity field goal percentage, eighth and fifth nationally in our quick points off of offensive rebound putbacks. Um, they have the experience. We talked about experience. They have the experience you need. Trent Frazier, Jacob Grandison, Demonte Williams, they're all redshirt seniors. Uh, Alfonso Plummer has been a big boost coming over from Utah, averages, averages 16 points a game. You maybe get Andre Curbelo back healthy. He's had the head and neck injuries from that concussion. He hasn't played since Thanksgiving, just wasn't right early on in the season. He, he was a con- key contributor last year. And you'll look at that Illinois team, even without Dasumu last, you remember what they did? They they went, you know, very similar to this Illinois team now. They went into Michigan, that Michigan team last year in Ann Arbor, and crushed them without Dasumu. Proves what they're capable of. And on top of that, I think Illinois, in my opinion, has a chip on their shoulder. They had that embarrassing loss in the, the second round of Loyola Chicago last year. And I just think that they that teams like Illinois, teams that have something to prove are a little bit dangerous in March. Um, and then as far as a double-digit seed, I'm going to throw out Florida. Uh, I, I just think balance is a big positive in March. And you look at some, some teams that are, would be in the tournament today that, that are kind of imbalanced. If you look at like San Diego State, a great defense, number 11 in the country, but 167th on the offensive end. We talked about Iowa, who's fourth in offensive efficiency, 160th in defensive efficiency. Florida is top 35 in both, 34th on offense, 30, 32nd on, on defense a team that's great on the offensive glass. They're, they're top 10 in both my metrics that measure quick uh, second chance points. That's the effect of having guys like Colin Castleton and Anthony DeRuji. 
They are not playing their best ball right now. Uh, they're 304th in momentum. They did have a murderer's row of SEC opponents. They lost all three, a loss to Alabama, a loss at Auburn, a loss to LSU before they righted the ship with a win against South Carolina. But if you're looking for that under-the-radar team for the NCAA tournament, maybe with like some SEC flavor like South Carolina did it back in 2016 and 2017, I don't know, maybe Florida is a team to keep a close eye on. Mm, good to know. I'll mark that one down. Um, before we go, do you have any like complete statistical anomalies that just happened? Like, for example, has there ever been a team that was analytically final that ended up winning the game throughout your what seven, I guess eight years now? Yeah. Has some metrics. You know, I don't. I, I've never really gone back and looked to see if um, it, how many. Uh, there's only two that come to mind, and there might be more than two, but I almost suspect it's just the two. The one that a lot of people really remember was that uh, the meltdown by Northern Iowa against Texas A&M in the NCAA tournament, where I think uh, Northern Iowa led by a, like 11 with 49 seconds left. And, and, and they just completely melted down. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I, I don't think A&M won in regulation, but they, they forced overtime and won in overtime. That was the one that everybody remembers. And then a year later, there was a game in the pit um, where New Mexico had a, a big lead on Nevada and I, you can look this game up and Nevada just went absolutely unconscious from three point range. And I don't know how far they were down, but that was another example of where the analytically final tag hit. And then the team that was behind rallied back to win. Those are the only two that I can think of. I never really have dug into it to see if another one had occurred since 2014, but I almost suspect that those were the only two in the last seven years. All right. Well, thank you so much for your insight and all your analysis and for everything you do for the college basketball community. Before we go, can you just tell us where we could follow you on Twitter and where we could find your site and et cetera? Yep. And people can, if you're looking for, for me on the internet, I'm on haslametrics.com. You can find me out there with the ratings, rankings, bracketology, projections, automated game summaries, automated team summaries. And then otherwise, if you want to interact with me on Twitter, you can find me going hashtag analytically final at, at Haslametrics. Good stuff. Well, uh, thank you so much, Eric. This has been Eric Haslam from Haslametrics.com. Um, appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. Uh, please leave us a five-star review if you like what you've heard and join our Discord, which we'll leave the link in the episode description. But besides that, once again, guys, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pipeline ACC podcast.